What is going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Boom Boom Performance Podcast. Today is Friday. Thank God it's Friday. We should be feeling good, guys. The weekend is right around the corner. Hopefully, you have crushed the week. I don't know about you, but Friday is an amazing day because I love, and this is my productive brain thinking, I love to sit down and reflect on the week. If you guys haven't sat down, taken out your journal, and just thought about what went well this week, what did I accomplish more of, what wins of the week did I have, any victories, um, anything, anything that is positive, lifting you up, taking you to the next level, progressing in your life, write it down. If that list is small, one, it's going to open your eyes to how much more productive you could be in your week. And two, if it's not small, if it's big, it's a chance to sit down and celebrate your wins because not enough people sit down and appreciate the shit that they have done that is going to take them to the next level. But I'm a big believer in journaling, as most of you guys know, and I'm a big believer in reflecting. So for me, Friday is reflection day. Most of my day is spent on coaching calls, but when I wake up in the morning and journal, I'm always journaling about what went well throughout the entire week. And then what I can do better next week. What do I want to do better next week? What more do I want to do next week? How am I going to accomplish something next week? Be specific. That way I go into the weekend, honestly, without stress. I'm not thinking about the week ahead. I'm not thinking about the week behind me. I've got it all done and I can be present and enjoy my weekend. Sunday night, I make a list of those things I'm going to do next week to make sure that I'm crushing the week ahead of me. And it's a system and it makes me super productive and it makes me clear, right? I think a lot of people lack clarity in their life, whether we're talking short term or long term. But if we don't know what we want to achieve and what we are achieving, what we're failing at, what the lessons are behind those failures, we're never going to grow as a person, as a business, as a physique, whatever role or area of life you want to take this in. I just think it's very important. This is completely random. I literally just hit record and I didn't even know what I was going to say. But that's the first thing that came to mind because it's Friday for you guys. It's Thursday for me, but I already know what I'm going to do tomorrow. And I want to make sure that you guys are setting yourself up for success um, and doing the right things. And every time I learn a new principle, a new strategy, a new tactic, a new hack, whatever you want to call it, I want to share it with you guys so you guys continue to grow. Today is a Q&A. We're going to talk strictly training and nutrition for almost all of it, a little bit of coaching. But today's going to be really, really good. Um, I actually didn't even ask for questions this time because – Uh, I still have questions from last week, so I might post on my Instagram story right now just in case we can squeeze a few more extra good ones in there, Um, and if not, I'll answer them in their DMs, but um, today's a good Q&A. We're going to talk a lot about training specifically um, and a little bit about nutrition, and we're going to get into it, guys. So before we get any further, once again, I say this every time, if you appreciate the show, if you love the show, if you want to help me grow the show, take a screenshot, post it on your story on Instagram, tag your boy at Cody.BoomBoom. Follow me if you are not, Um, and I want to see this grow. I want to see other people being able to see what you're listening to, and I want to see who's listening to my podcast so I can have a conversation with you. Um, And then last but not least, if you guys want to leave a five-star rating review, it is greatly appreciated. That does help us grow on iTunes, and as we know, podcasts are held in iTunes. If we can grow on iTunes, that's a win. Um, Without any further ado, let's get on to all these awesome questions. You know what? Before we start this Q&A, I have a quick little side rant. I got a lot of good questions, but I want to talk about some before we get into those. The thing I want to talk about is consistency. I think that there is literally an overwhelmingly amount of there's an overwhelming amount of information out there that can confuse us, that can get us sidetracked from the goal, that can really just cloud our brain, cloud our thoughts, cloud our perspective, and cloud our mission or our path and get confusing of what we should actually do to see results. 
But what and – I, and I wrote an article about this um, – or I'm sorry, a, a newsletter about this this morning, so I want to touch on it. I have – so I've been in the coaching industry. I've been coaching for eight years now, um, meaning I have been working with people literally uh, to help them change their body for eight years straight. And during that time, I've gone to college for this. I have read as many articles as I could. I have read as many research reviews as I could. I've read hundreds of books. I've attended seminars around the country, weekend workshops, online courses um, that have lasted a year long, some that have lasted a couple months. I'm continuing to do all these things. I've worked with thousands of people at this point. My website has reached tens of thousands of people. I've answered tens of thousands of emails. Um, And I'm not saying all this to impress you, but to impress upon you that I've absorbed a lot of information. I've looked into a lot of things. I've taken in a lot of info done a lot of educational things to make me a better coach, to have more knowledge. And the same exact concept, the same exact theory, the same exact answer comes at the end of every single one of those informative tools. Every single research review ends with the same thing. Every single educational process ends with the same thing. Every single tactic and strategy ends with the same exact answer or result or concept. And that's adherence. Adherence is the number one key. If you cannot adhere to something, you cannot stick to it. And if you cannot stick to it, you're not going to see results, period, end of story. It's the truth. It's all that matters. If you can't stick to it, then you're wasting your time. If you can't enjoy it, if you can't enjoy the process, if you don't like what you're doing, if you're going to the gym and doing a training program that makes you feel shitty, that you don't enjoy, that you don't like, that you can't have any fun with, that doesn't give you the feeling that you want to get, it's not going to work for you. And this is exactly why, for example – I will always have some kind of isolation bodybuilding work in my programming, even when I did CrossFit. I might throw it in at the end. There's something about getting a pump. There's something about feeling a burn. There's something about doing high rep training in isolation work for my shoulders or my legs or my arms or my chest. There's something about it that I love, and it makes me excited to work out. And even if it's not the thing I need to work on most, even if it's not the most optimal thing, I need to do that because that's what keeps me in the gym for longer. It's very, very important. High rep training versus low rep training, drop sets, carb cycling, keto, high fat, low fat, paleo, macros. Like we can go on and on about all these different strategies and tools. But if you can't stick to it, if you don't enjoy it, if it doesn't vibe with you, it's pointless. And I can't tell you how many times I've read legit research reviews that break down a new study and it's so compelling of why blank is more optimal than blank. But then it finishes and concludes with, But without consistent adherence, both are obsolete. So again, what does it matter, right? So I think it's very, very important for us to consider that thing um, that it's just so important to adhere long term. It's so important to be consistent. And if you have trouble being consistent, this is going to sound crazy. If you're having trouble being consistent, start getting consistent. And what I mean by that is simple. If you start with one day, right, one day. That's going to be hard. Your first day getting into it, it's going to be tough. It's going to be hard. You're going to have to change your habits. You're going to have to shift things. You have to do something different, something new, something you're not used to. It's difficult. Day two becomes a little bit easier because you've already done it once. Day three becomes even easier than it all. Day four, again, you're starting to build habits. You're starting to get used to the feelings. Day five, it becomes second nature. By day 21, it's a habit and you don't even know any better. So to get consistent, 
Start with today. Just focus on today. Just focus on getting consistent for a day, then for two days, then for three days. Don't think about how long it's going to take you to get to your result. Yeah, you should probably understand that it takes some time, but damn, if you really only focus on that three-month goal, six-month goal, 12-month goal, the light at the end of the tunnel is too far away. You're not going to stay engaged. So I I wanted to share this because I think that I talk a lot about science on the podcast, and I, and, and I love it. I love digging into science. I read research reviews every day. I, re, I spend time every single day studying, whether it's a new book, um, the new nutrition course I'm going to be getting into, all these different things. Like I love learning more. Um, I'll learn the same thing I've already learned a million times from 10 different individuals so I can learn different ways of how this is implemented because I just love knowledge, and I think it's important. But at the end of the day, like none of it, it's all just white noise unless you can adhere to it and stay consistent. So every area of your life, I want you guys to stop and like while you're listening to this, actually think about these different areas in your life, whether that's your relationship, whether it's your business, whether it's your mindset or it's your body. Look at these areas in your life. Look at where your goal is compared to where you're at. If there's a gap there, it has something to do with you not adhering to what you want to do. Whether that's giving appreciation to those you love, going on dates, spending more time with family, whatever it may be. You're not adhering to some system behind you actually making that happen. Or something else in those other areas of your life is blocking you from being able to do so. you got to find a way to adhere. you got to find a way to be consistent. It's all that matters and everything else is pointless. Now, I talk about the science because I love the science. And some of that can apply to some of us. And some of us can grow from learning some of that stuff. But again, like... I, I got to make this clear because I just want you guys to know, and even, even for the people who have clients who are coaches on here, don't try to give your clients the most science-based stuff if they're not ready for it. They need to just figure out what they can adhere best to. That's all that matters. So I really want people to start focusing on that, whether you're a coach or a client or just somebody looking to better their life. Adherence is the number one factor, and even studies, even studies, no matter how in-depth they go on the coolest shit in the industry, the coolest new breaking science They will say none of it matters if you cannot adhere. It's plain and simple. All right. Now that I got that rant out, I don't know why I wanted to talk about that, but actually I do. I feel like not enough people prioritize that, right? We all talk about science. We all talk about the intelligence. We all talk about smart training, smart nutrition. We talk about all these different things, and I talk about individualization. Like you hear me repeat it over and over and over again. All I talk about is lifestyle performance and individualized nutrition. That's what my brand is about. And the reason my brand is about that is because individualization is adherence. Me individualizing a, a nutrition plan or a training program for somebody is building everything around what they can adhere to. That's why my clients are successful. End of story. Because they have systems, structures, plans that work with their schedule, work with their lifestyle, work with their work routine, their family life, their social life, whatever it may be. And yes, some of them get into the details, right? Some of my clients love that shit, macros and everything, and I love it. It's good because it works, but only if they can adhere to it. Best advice I can give anybody, especially those starting in the industry, because I remember when I first got into things and I just wanted to talk about the latest and greatest studies and science and things that were coming out, but it it doesn't matter if you can't adhere. All right, let's get on to the first question. Uh, We have a question from Instagram. Zero zero truck zero zero. I have major gut and health issues through a burden of mercury through my teeth. Huh. I haven't heard of that. Now I can't eat high allergy foods like 
eggs, dairy, nuts, avocados, and seeds? How should I incorporate healthy fats into my diet? Which oils can or should I add into my meals? Or how can I get my fats in? Can I really add oils to my meals? If so, how much is a healthy serving per meal? I struggle a lot and help will be very much appreciated. Thanks a lot for your help and your valuable time. All right, so I would say like the easiest way, I mean, you said eggs, dairy, nuts, avocados, and seeds. So obviously extra virgin olive oil, tons of health benefits. Coconut oil is a saturated fat, tons of health benefits. So they're right there. You're getting two different types of fats that are both extremely healthy for you. Um, I would probably... You said dairy, but sometimes people can still tolerate grass-fed butter. So I would try gear grass-fed butter and see if you can tolerate it or just do the research if you've been tested on sensitivities and stuff. If you can tolerate grass-fed butter, go with that because I think that's another good saturated fat to get in there. Um, if not, leave it out. Um, meat, I would start actually eating fattier meats. So like grass-fed, grass-finished steaks, grass-fed, grass-finished lamb, um, grass-fed beef, um, salmon. Um, definitely take your fish oil. Um and you're good. I mean, how much should you have per meal? I mean, for me, to be honest with you, like we got to look at the hierarchy for this. So number one most important thing is total intake. So if we're going to say that your daily intake of fats need to be 60 grams, let's say. This is a random. I don't know your height, weight. I don't even know what you look like because you don't have a picture for your default. Um, but let's just say 60 grams is your is your measurement. Then priority number one, add those fats in your diet and just make sure that you're getting you're hitting that 60 grams a day. Within, you know, three to five grams at most, um, ideally two to three. Now, if you're hitting somewhere between 58 and 62 grams of fat per, per day, whether that's spread between one meal, two meals, three meals, four meals, doesn't matter, you're going to be okay. Now, moving down the hierarchy, we know that there's macros, then micros, then meal timing. This is where I actually, I'm, I'm a very... There is a hierarchy, but I love – like I'm a big fan of meal timing. I think nutrient timing is not pointless. I think it's actually really smart. So for me, I would suggest splitting that up evenly throughout your meals. If you're eating three meals a day, that's 20 meals each. If you're eating four meals a day, that's a little bit less. <laughs> I don't know the math on that. Um, but basically, you're spreading those out evenly throughout your day. Um, I had to do the math. That's 15 – damn, I should have known that. That's 15 grams of fat per meal. So – I would split them up evenly. I believe that some people's gut and uh, insulin sensitivity is more so for carb tolerance, how much carbs you can have in a meal. But I do believe the body is only going to, you know, you're going to have more gut issues and more likelihood to store as body fat. Um, and this is imperial, just this is empirical, just fucking uh, experience. And just what my mind tells me, no studies to back this up because all studies will say calories in versus calories out is most important. But your gut might not tolerate as well. You possibly might store more fat. Very, very low chance, but you could happen. If you're eating two grams of fat per meal and then all of a sudden you have 54 grams of fat in one meal, I don't think it's going to sit well. I think your body is going to have to like – and if we look at a completely balanced meal, if you're having carbs and proteins and fiber and all these different things in that meal, it's a lot of food. It's a lot of calories. It's going to be hard to digest at once. Your body's going to have to – fight to figure out what to do with these nutrients all at once. I like a more balanced day. I find better results with people when we balance things out. They're eating four meals a day. They evenly spread that fat across those meals. Um, but that's how I would do it. And can you really add oils to your meals? Absolutely. I don't think it's an issue at all. Um, the healthy fats are going to be simple, right? The meats, you just eat them. That's your protein source too. Fish oil, take it as a supplement in the morning. Um, oils, cook your food in oils. Simple coconut oil, same thing. You can eat it raw if you want to. Grass-fed butter, if you can tolerate that, put it on your carbs. Rice, sweet potato, anything, so good. Um, so there's a lot of ways you can eat it. The point is, is that you're getting it in is really all that matters. 
All right, let's see what's next. Get fit with Gabby, underscore get fit with Gabby. My lower back, specifically my left, sorry, my lower back, specifically my left side has been killing me since I make a wrong positioning, since I made a wrong positioning of feet doing a sumo deadlift. What recommendations do you have to heal my back? So the number one thing, um, so if your left side specifically is killing you, it's probably your QL, which is uh, a muscle that's lined up on the left or, left or right, it's on both sides, of your back. If it was in the middle, then I would probably say maybe it's an SI joint issue. Maybe it's a uh, spinal erector issue where, like, the muscle's lining up your spine. That's what I – I used to have pretty bad issues with my spinal erectors. They would get so inflamed it almost looked like I had abs or, like, my kidneys were popping out. It's really, really bad. It gets super tight. Um, so I think there's a couple things going on there. If it's a QL, I mean, number one, there you should be doing hip flexor stretches, glute stretches, probably some lat stretching, and then also a QL stretch. Um, I'll see if I can post a good one in the description for you guys to uh, check out. But there is some good QL stretches that you could be doing. Um, and then if, you're, if your back is hurting you from deadlifting, period, which is probably how – we should – I mean like I'm going to approach this two ways. Like what recommendations do I have to heal your back? Number one, stretch those areas because that's going to release some tension. Number two, work on some hip mobility um, just to make sure that your hips are mobile, your hips are moving, and that's not creating the tension um, in, the, in the injury in your back. And then number three, like rest. Just chill out. Don't go to the gym. You can ice if you want to. But the big thing is like don't stress your back more. Once it's tight and stressed – you're in a bad position. My goal for you would be to calm down, get into parasympathetic mode. Typically, when we're injured like that, our, our nervous system will turn on. It'll be in sympathetic mode because it's like trying to fight this pain. Every time you feel it, you're tightening up. You worked out. Ner nervous system's up. Cortisol's up. Stress is up. What you want to do is practice some breathing drills. So some like 90-90 breathing patterns is going to be good. PRI belly breathing, alligator breathing, going to be great for you. Um, rest, recover. Don't go to the gym. I would – Really focus on good nutrition. Um, obviously, get enough protein because that's going to help all tissues in the body. Hydrate plenty. It's going to help too. Um, and just rest. I mean, there's nothing. once you're hurt like that, there's really nothing you can do. The big thing you're going to want to do is prehab it. So you want to work on preventing it from happening again. And what you're going to need to do for that is simply – mobility, continue to stretch your lat, your hip flexors, your glutes, and your QLs. Um, and then when you're deadlifting, find a better foot position. Like you said that you've been changing your foot position um, since you made a wrong positioning. So I don't know what that means, but basically like I, I see a lot of people change their stance too much, right? Too wide, too narrow, point toes way too far out. Like find your most comfortable stance with a lightweight. Put lightweight on the bar, sit down, Figure out your angle of how far your toe should be pointing out. Everybody's different, has different ranges of motion when it comes to external rotation. Find your hip width. Find your stance width. Find how low your butt's going to sit compared to other people because everybody's different. Some people sumo with their hips kind of high, chest lower. Some people, it's more of a squat-looking deadlift. You got to find what works for you and what feels most comfortable for you and what allows you to have your hips and your knees move sim simultaneously up. So I see a lot of people, they'll pull, and the first thing that happens is their hips shoot up right away. When your hips shoot up like that, yes, you're creating more hamstring dominance, but you're also creating more low back dominance, whether, again, we're talking lumbar, um, spinal erectors, QL, whatever's going to kick in to help you manage that. If your hips shoot up, you're more likely to round. You're more likely to put tension on your back. Your core is going to be disengaged, so your core is not bracing enough to support your low back in that movement. 
So what you want to do is get into a position and then try to think about squatting it up. So as you dig your heels into the floor and go to stand, your hips and your knees move simultaneously together at the same exact time, the exact same time. As the bar is passing your knees, that's when you want to thrust your hips forward like a hip thruster, kind of explosively. So it's like squat halfway up, hip thrust halfway up. It's still a hip hinge movement. But if you think about doing that, I promise you, you're going to save your back so much because everything moves together rather than um, your hips shooting up first. All right. Sarah, I feel bad you're my client. I actually don't know how to pronounce this. So you can text me or, or, or message me on Instagram, I mean, and email me and let me know if I butcher this. Sarah.Alice, Alice, A-L-Y-S-E, Alice, dot fitness. I really don't know, but let me know. When is the best time to implement diet breaks if biofeedback is still optimal? So I like this question because I think that this is one of those things kind of going back to that consistency or just uh, shiny, uh, like what's that, shiny toy toy syndrome or whatever where you just kind of want to like look at everything because it's cool. Diet breaks are very, very useful, but if your biofeedback markers are good, like you said, there's no reason for a diet break. A diet break is is built in to make sure that you bring up biofeedback markers when they're not good. So if you're in a dieting phase and you're 8, 10, 12, 16, 20 weeks, however long you're into it, and you still have enough time to take a break um, and not worry about losing weight, maybe even gaining a pound or two, which is most likely just going to be glycogen because you're fueling yourself with extra carbs that week, that will be removed within a week again. Um, if you have enough time to do so, and you're starting to feel lethargic. Your sleep's starting to be affected. Your motivation's starting to be affected. Your cravings are, are going up. Your performance in the gym is starting to, to decline quite a bit because it's going to regardless of deficit. But if it's quite a bit, your energy is really low. Motivation, I think I might have said that, but motivation's a big one. Like all these different things, those are biofeedback markers that are telling us hormonally and metabolically things are starting to slow down. We probably need to take a break from this diet because if we keep going down this path, it's not going to get any better. In fact, it's just going to get worse. And these symptoms of biofeedback markers that we're experiencing in a negative way are going to continue. At that point, we enter in a diet break. A diet break is going to be, I mean, it could be three days, which is pretty short, but it could be all the way up to 10 days. So it could be all the way up to 14 days, actually two weeks. So anywhere between three days to two weeks where you bring calories back up to maintenance via carbs. So if your macros right now, if you're cutting and your macros are at 160 protein 135 carbs and 50 fat like that's where your low is at right now you're getting lean but you're starting like results are slowing down any biofeedback markers are starting to be negatively impact pretty heavily you might want to do a diet break and what you would do is go okay where are my true maintenance calories like where do i think they're at maybe that would be at 160 protein 200 carbs 250 carbs whatever it may be you're going to bring those carbs all the way up leaving protein and fats the same that's going to give you enough time to completely refuel uh Refuel your glycogen stores uh, for performance. It's going to help you recover more. It's going to help you sleep more. It's going to help your hormonal capacity. It's actually going to raise leptin and ghrelin, uh, the hunger hormones that actually will boost metabolism, like a cheat day or refeed was once claimed to do, but it won't because a 24-hour period is not long enough. You need at least 48 hours, like a a two-day refeed. So a diet break would definitely increase those hormones you need to be increased. Um, And you'd start seeing those biofeedback markers kind of come back. This is a great way on a long cut. Like if I have somebody cutting for a show and we have 24 weeks, we might start cutting early 
um, to get them ready ahead of time. But halfway through, we might take a diet break just to make sure that we're kind of uh, dotting our I's and crossing our T's, uh, you know, making sure security-wise, like, we're, we're safe. Hormones are in check. Metabolic capacity is in check. We're not going to damage things too much. Part of the process of doing a show is that way. But I really like to use these to make sure people are okay in that process. Uh, but going back to your question, the right time to implement a diet break is when biofeedback is not optimal. So you asked when it is a, a good time to enter it when biofeedback is optimal. Well, I would say you don't need to do it. If biofeedback is optimal, you're in a good place, whether you're trying to lose weight or gain weight. Like it's, it's, it's positive, right? If you're – even if like even some people can last longer in a deficit – I've had plenty of clients where I like in my mind, I'm like, okay, we've been doing this a while. I feel like it's probably time to reverse or it's time for a diet break, but their biofeedback markers are checking out. They're feeling good. They're sleeping great. They're still hungry. They're satisfied with their meals. They still have motivation. They still have energy in the gym and they're still progressing. There's no reason for me to create a diet break. Their goal is to lose fat. And if things are going as planned, I'm not going to touch that. I'm going to keep letting it go. And I'm going to save that diet break as a tool on my tool belt for when that time comes that I need to do it. So I think it's a, a misunderstood thing for some people, and I think, like, you never want to rush into a diet break. There's just no real reason to do so. M. Chardy or McHardy? I don't know. Let's go with McHardy. I think that sounds better. McHardy 16. How would you set up a three times a week full body workout for fat loss? Oh, I know exactly how I would do this. So I actually – and I was thinking about – you know what? If, if you're listening to this right now and you would be interested in me releasing a ebook training program um, or – if you're in the membership site and you would like me to release a three times a week training program, right now inside the membership site, we have a four times a week training program um, that crushes. It's outstanding. I'm super pumped about the results that people are going to see from that program. So every, everybody tested, I think, first week uh, in there just to make sure that we got their lifts tested and everything. But that program is solid. I'm really, really pumped about that. Um, very, very science-based. I put a lot into it, so I'm excited. But if you were in there and you were interested in me putting in a full body program or if you're listening to this and you're interested in a full body program, let me know because I've created plenty of them and I wouldn't be opposed to creating an extra ebook um, along with Functional Muscle 2.0 because that's going to launch in September next month. Um, but, but that's not a full body uh, three day a week. I'll save the juices and the secrets of that for later. Um, but a three times a week full body program, one like so the way I would set it up is first each day has an activation phase that is going to contribute to the compound lift. So if you're starting – like, so let's pick the compound lifts first, the metric-based lifts. Um, this could be uh, – I would probably recommend two, days, two of the days having a squat and a deadlift as a compound because I think like if we're going to do full body, I think legs should be the dominance of compound lifting that are going to be in your first big – compound metric based lifts so day one might be a squat day three might be a deadlift whatever you want to set it up as um, typically I would recommend doing the squat first uh, just from well I guess it depends I think I think it depends where like for me I would do the squat first because I front squat and I know the front squat's not going to make my low back tender and it's not I'm not going to have to worry about having back pain when I get to the deadlift uh, but for some people Squats can cause back pain if you're doing back squats. So, um, so it really depends on that. You got to think about the days that are coming up. The Wednesday, so let's say Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Monday is squat. Friday is deadlift. Wednesday, I would probably set up as a either bench press or overhead press. And I would set up the following accessory work as the opposite. So if you're more focused on increasing strength or hypertrophy in your shoulders, 
go with an overhead press. Your first accessory move is going to be a dumbbell flat bench press. Um, if, if you are more focused on getting chest strength and size, then maybe you flip that. First one compound lift is going to be a barbell bench press, and the second one is going to be a dumbbell seated military press, for example, as your accessory work. I would set up an activation phase according to whatever the compound lift is. So if on the squat day, for example, I would probably go with a some kind of face pull to uh, activate my upper back. People are uh, very misunderstood or just don't understand, I guess. like Not a lot of people use, I should say, underutilize the face pull or just upper back activation prior to squatting. If you're back squatting, great. If you're front squatting, great. Either one, you should fire up your upper back before you do so. Um, then I would follow that up with a hamstring curl variation, whether that's a machine, a Swiss ball, single leg hip thrust, anything to fire up and get blood flow into my hamstrings because that's going to create lubrication and joint health and just a, a more fluid squat, a more depth-based squat. Like you're going to feel better squatting after doing hamstring curls, I can guarantee you. Um, and then I would follow that up with probably a side plank because side plank and working on the, the obliques will actually help increase external rotation, external torque in your hip, which is great before a squat. You can actually rip the floor apart, create torque and rip, rip your knees out, create external rotation in your hip, create more depth in your squat. Same thing with a deadlift, really good one before that is like a pal-off press or a side plank. And then if I still had room to do something, I'd probably do a jump squat just to get something explosive in that movement pattern do two to three rounds of that. Then I would squat heavy. It would probably be anywhere between that four to six rep range for four to five sets. I want to go heavy on this first lift. Um, I'm not splitting my days up in low rep and high rep days. I'm going to hit every rep range per day if I'm doing a full body split. So the first thing I'm going to go heavy with, compound lift, four to six reps. Maybe I start with four by four week one, and then I add a rep each week with the same weight until I hit six or seven reps, then I'm going to bring it back down to four and add weight to it. My, my accessory work would be something that is going to support not only the squat, but more so the deadlift on the next day. That way I can create, this is a good way to like kind of hit each body part more than once, hit each movement pattern more than once, but not overload the exact movement. And what I mean by that or exercise I'm not going to do a deadlift after squat. I might do a hip thrust, for example. I might do a stiff leg RDL. Something that's going to help promote strength in my other uh, compound lifts of the week. Right now, I'm creating more frequency between the body parts, so I'm not just sticking with quad dominance all day. I'm going to do some glutes, some hamstrings, some quads, everything. Um, then I would probably superset that with a row, some kind of heavy row, which is going to benefit all of my lifting because the more you work your back – posterior chain the better so maybe it looks like a hip thrust supersetted with a one-arm dumbbell row really crank on the posterior chain after that i'm probably going to do a, a unilateral superset focusing on something that's going to help my squat now and something that's going to help my bench press which is coming the next training session on wednesday so that might look like a dumbbell alternating reverse lunge from a deficit for example supersetted with an alternating incline dumbbell press so now I'm working upper chest slash shoulders. I'm working unilateral on both of them. I'm going to be working my core on both of those as well. That's great. Then I'm going to finish with some kind of EDT. I like EDTs better than AMRAPs. I think AMRAPs are chaotic. I think it's an excuse to go too hard And for some people. I still program AMRAPs, but it's in a controlled setting, and, and I know who I'm doing it for. But I think like CrossFit abused 
AMRAP sometimes and people end up doing too many of them too often. There's a time and place to do an AMRAP and to go hard as you can for a given time period. But I think a lot of people abuse that and they end up doing AMRAPs all the time in all their sessions. And what this leads to is just central nervous system fatigue. You're burnt out. You're going way too hard on the sympathetic. Um, There's no control. So a lot of times the movements become unsafe because you're just getting after it. Um, So to me, I like an EDT, which is an escalated density training circuit, I guess you can call it. EDT, you have a timeline, just like an AMRAP. So maybe it's a 12-minute EDT on the end of this day. During that, I'm going to do isolation work, and it's controlled. So I might actually do like a sled pull down and back, followed by dumbbell curls, dumbbell lateral raises, and some kind of ab exercise. So now I'm doing a little shoulder and arm isolation, a little bit of ab isolation, and something metabolic at the end. But I don't rush it. So I go to 12 to 15 minutes, and it's controlled. I do the movements with tempos, slow it down, focus on pauses, create tension. When I'm done with that movement, I don't rush to the next one. I just slowly move on to the next thing, and I just keep a controlled tempo, a controlled pace the entire time. And I would set up each one of my days like this. So the bench press day might be activation, bench press, overhead press uh, with dumbbells, supersetted with a chin-up, a vertical pull this time. Then I might do a unilateral movement for hip hinge or... Uh, knee dominant, whatever I want to work on most. If I'm more focused on building my deadlift, I'm probably going to do a single leg RDL or something along those lines. Anterior lunge, glute dominant lunge, something like that. Single leg hip test, something like that. Um, And I'm going to superset that with probably some kind of horizontal row because I believe everybody should horizontal row way more. And then I'll follow that up with an EDT again. Maybe I'm focusing on um, my traps triceps and abs and metabolic this time, something different, right? But that's how I'd probably categorize each and every day. Um, That way, each day of the week, you're getting enough frequency. You're doing enough volume on each body part. You're keeping it functional by hitting everything each day. You're separating your rep ranges from activation is always a little bit higher um, reps unless it's explosive work to make sure you're getting that blood flow, that pump. After that, your your compound metric-based movement is going to be a little bit lower rep range, more focused on strength. After that, the first accessory work is going to stay in that 8 to 10 rep range, which is like bridging the gap between strength and hypertrophy. And then after that, we're going to focus on that 12 to 15 rep range, so we're getting a little bit closer to that hypertrophy. And then EDT is all about density. So you can actually do 5 reps, 7 reps, 9 reps, 11 reps, 20 reps. It doesn't matter what you're doing in that time frame, but because you're constantly moving and you're striving to get more work done each week, you're actually creating enough density to where the volume's there anyway. So it's kind of a bridge between intensity and, and volume. Uh, but even in there, I'm probably I usually don't go below eight reps in a uh, in a EDT unless it's something like a renegade row where it's a very carb or a core dominant movement. I'm thinking about carbs right now, uh, a core dominant movement um, in your alternating arms. So it's six per side, so it's actually twelve. So. That's how I would set up a three times a week full body plan. I prefer training four or five days a week for most people, um, but there's a lot of people who can't get in the gym that often, or there's a lot of people who I actually want working on conditioning work. So what I will do is I will program three lifting days just like this, and then I will have three conditioning or energy system days where we actually work the low intensity, the moderate intensity, and the high intensity range of conditioning. So um, I think I demolished that question and broke it down as, as detailed as possible. Oh, he actually – so, okay, so McCarty actually had another question. Um, how do you – basically, he's asking 
on top of the three times a week, he, he said, how do you get enough pole variation? Because he saw another post that I made basically stating that you should have two times as many poles as you should have push. So if you do a bench press, you should have twice as much volume for horizontal rowing. Um, and I believe you should have twice as much horizontal rowing than you should have vertical rowing in most cases. When we get into specific bodybuilding and people have muscle imbalances and they're stepping on stage in front of people who are going to judge them on their symmetry and their muscle bellies and stuff like that, it can be a little bit different. But for most people, you absolutely should focus on the horizontal rowing movement pattern more than anything else on the upper body. Now, how do I make sure to get enough pole volume on a three times a week training program? Pretty simple. You prioritize your back. So you're basically going to going to be doing less push volume, plain and simple. If you're doing three days a week, you're probably not focused on maximizing as much muscle hypertrophy as possible because it's just, to be honest with you, to get really big, I don't care what anybody says, to get really big, to to grow, I shouldn't even say really big because to get like massive on any program, like, like abnormally massive, you need to be uh, enhanced on steroids. Um, so to grow muscle effectively as possible, you're probably going to want to be on a four times or a five times a week split. And there's a lot of people who will argue with me on that and who will say you can grow just as much on a three times a week split. And it really comes down to genetics. There's certain people who are genetically gifted to a standpoint where they adapt extremely well to low volume training. I, I have friends that can do like literally three exercises in a lit, in a day. They'll do a deadlift. They'll do like a front-loaded squat, and they'll do, finish with like sled poles. They'll just do like six sets of each. Their volume will be way lower than mine. They go heavier and do less reps, but they grow. They're genetically gifted. That's just what they're predisposed to do, and they're probably anomalies. Like there's less of those there. It's, it's very well known that we need volume. to Volume is the key driver in muscle hypertrophy and muscle growth, um, which I think is important for fat loss as well because the more muscle we grow or the more muscle growth training we do, the more calories we burn long-term and short-term. I'm a firm believer in that, so I even train my fat loss clients like they are trying to build muscle. I think that's very, very important. But So going back to this question – I would just make sure that I have twice as much volume. I mean, your your chest volume, your shoulder volume is probably going to lower. You're going to do way more trap and lat work, way more rhomboid work, and that's actually fine. Um, you're not going to shrink. Like, there's a minimum effective volume. There's, like, a maintenance volume. There's a maximum recoverable volume. You need to bring your chest and shoulder work down to that minimum effective or that maintainable volume. So you're not really worried about growing those muscle groups as much as possible. If your goal is fat loss and you're doing three times a week, I would prioritize growing, quote unquote, your back because that's going to be a bigger muscle group that's going to burn more calories anyway. But it's also going to set you up for healthier shoulders and longevity in the gym, which is going to support fat loss way more. Um, So I hope I answered that properly as well. Tony Sadiku, how do you go about slash recommend coaching your clients through nutrition, dieting, and keeping them accountable? Do you utilize any technology? So this is obviously a coach. So I think that – how would I recommend? So I just did a podcast with John Goodman. So we're going to – well, that was more on marketing for online coaches. Um, really good podcast coming out on that. I think like – how I would recommend, like, I, I'm a big fan of finding out what technology works for you. Like, there's all these apps and trainerize and these different platforms that you can use to set up your c- online coaching clients. I think there's one called, like, PT Hub. They're cool. I get the concept. It's a smart idea. It's a good business plan. But I just think that if that doesn't work well for you, don't force yourself. It's like forcing 
a round, what is it, a square peg through a round hole? Like, you're not, like, you don't need, like, for me, that would overwhelm me. Trying to upload things, trying to use their system, trying to get my clients on their system, trying to make sure that my clients are checking their app all the time. I personally don't think that would work for me. What works for me is simply having folders set up on my laptop. I use Google Drive for a lot of shit. I have Google Docs and Google Sheets and stuff like that to keep track of people's progress. Um, I have a lot of documents saved on my computer. That's what works for me. My clients get great results. It's not confusing to them, and they love it. So as long as my clients aren't getting stressed, they're not confused, and they're getting great results, that's all I care about. Like My job is to get them results. That's literally all I give a shit about. It's just making sure my clients are not stressed out, they're happy, and they are seeing progress. So how am I going to effectively do that? Well, I'm going to do it in a a way that is not only efficient but stress-free for me because if I get stressed and I get cluttered and I don't know how the fuck to work this system or platform, then they're going to be stressed. They're going to be cluttered. They're not going to know how to work it, and they're not going to get results. So I think like there's a lot of stuff out there that can be used, but only use it if it works for you. That goes back to that adherence talk. I'm not going to adhere to some crazy system. For me, it's Google Sheets, Google Docs, emails, stuff like that. Um, How I keep them accountable is we stay in touch. So a lot of my clients fill out a daily tracker where they're actually filling out. uh, We have a system. Where are your macros at? Where's your weight at? Where is your – how many hours of sleep did you get? What's your performance like? What's your fatigue like? What's your level of motivation this morning when you woke up? Do you have any notes to share with me? Every single day. So now they can wake up, jump on their phone and do that very easily and I have all the data I need on a regular basis. And by the end of the week when they fill out their assessment form, so when my clients work with me, every single week they're going to be assessed. So we want to look at at, as a total during the week because obviously throughout the week there's fluctuations. At the end of the week, where's your weight at? Where was it at last week? Where are your measurements at? Where were they at last week? How's your performance? How's your sleep? How's your cravings? How's your stress? How's your mood? Did you have any PRs in the gym? What went well? What didn't go so well? What can I help you do better? Like we go through all this stuff every week because at the end of every week, we're both reflecting on their progress and we know where they're at. If they're not where they need to be in order to get to the end result, I now see that and I have all the data I need to be like, okay, cool. This is how we're going to adjust. No stress. I know you didn't make progress this week, but we know exactly how and why. And I know exactly how we're going to make progress next week by tweaking X, Y, Z. So it gives me all the data I need. It's very, very simple. Um, And then for accountability, shit, just having to fill out that weekly update form, especially for my clients who take progress pictures every week, those two things alone, that's enough accountability. It's the same thing for me. I have a coach. I'm I'm not doing my cut by myself. It's just I need accountability. I could do it myself from a knowledge standpoint, but I'd rather have to send somebody a picture of me without my shirt on every single week and report back to them with how my strength is, how my performance is, how my mood is where my macros are at, how consistent I was, it makes me accountable. And for my clients, I don't do this with my coach, but for my clients, when they have to fill out that daily tracker, they know that I'm watching it. Like I can see it any time, any day. So now they have accountability just with that. So I think there's a lot of ways you can do it. That's how I do it. Um, if that doesn't help, man, feel free to hit me up uh, and I can show you more. All right. So we got a question from Call Me Dumay. I think that's how you say it. When reverse dieting, is it okay to just track calories and protein or should you track all the macros? Um, he had two questions. So that was the first one. So I'm a big fan of tracking all macros. I personally think that's smarter. A couple of reasons. One, food labels and MyFitnessPal both round. And what happens at the end of the day is that your calories are off. So if, if, if you eat something that's 90 calories and it rounds to 90 and then you have something that's 96 and it rounds to 100 and, and throughout the day this happens with everything you eat, 
your macros could be spot on, but your calories could be off. So if you're not tracking macros, you're always just kind of guessing close range. Like, I mean, you're going to be within 50 to 200 at most, I would assume, depending on how many calories you're consuming a day and how much different foods you're eating all day. But you're going to be pretty close. So that's fine. But macros are exact. Like you're never going to get a wrong mathematical equation. You're going to be as accurate as possible with macros. So I'm a personal believer in that. The other reason is, is because when you're reverse dieting, different people respond differently to different macros. And what I mean by that is if you are eating 200 grams of protein, 150 grams of carbs, and 50 grams of fat, and this week we're reverse dieting you again, and I have a choice between adding fat or adding carbs, both of those are going to have physiological differences in them Um, from a stress response, from a hormonal response, from a metabolic response, from a performance response, from a recovery response. So if you're just tracking calories and what you're adding into your diet changes day to day, week to week, whether you're adding fats or carbs or going back and forth, it's less systemized, it's less structured, and I believe that you're going to get subpar results on a reverse diet because certain people, I will purposely crank carbs up and just leave fats low. Like I'm not worried about fats. I'm worried about carbs. They need to get those carbs up. Some people, I don't care about carbs depending on their training, their lifestyle, all that stuff. And all I want to do is get up their fats because they're not eating enough healthy fats. Their hormones might be shutting down on them. So there's different ways to approach it. Um, I think it's smarter that way, and it's easier to make micro adjustments as well. Adding 10 grams of carbs and 2 grams of fat, for example. That's a small adjustment. But that's an adjustment that might be very necessary depending on where someone's at. If you're adding calories, it just becomes a little bit more skewed and random. His other question was treadmill versus ski meal. And he said, in uh, parentheses, motorless treadmill for sprints. So I've never heard of a ski meal, but he said motorless treadmill, and I've seen those before. Uh, For sprints, I would absolutely go with a motorless treadmill. Um, And and if those are like the wood whatever, wayward or whatever those are, where they're kind of bent, they're great. They're actually difficult at first because they force you to have a, a very, very good sprint gait, a very good running gait between your legs and your steps, and it can be hard. So you might not be having the perfect foot contact on a regular treadmill, but when you get on those fucking things, it forces you into perfection. It's really hard actually to stay upright and stuff if you don't have a perfect gait. Like I didn't sprint for a long time and I jumped on one of those with Kaiza and I almost ate shit. Um, and she was a sprinter in track, so she crushed it, but and it's hard to keep it up with her. But um, I would go with that. I just think they're better. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's more fun. It pushes you. It's exciting. So you actually will sprint harder and it's natural. So you don't have to match your speed with the treadmill speed. If you're doing intervals, you're going to sprint as hard as you can at your own percentage and you don't have to worry about the miles per hour on the treadmill. So I'm a bigger fan of those. Uh, T. Clark Nutrition. What's the typical ideal scenario for weight gain each week when attempting to lean bulk? My goal is to slowly and sustainably put on muscle while minimizing fat gain. I know it varies from week to week, but what's a good baseline to aim for? Thanks as always, man. Love all your stuff. Uh, so awesome, man. Thank you. I, I appreciate you following and I appreciate you supporting and, and you've been uh, following and, and messaging and listening to my stuff for a while, dude. So I, I really, really do appreciate you for that. Um, this is a cool one. I, I'm actually really excited for this because, so I have eight weeks almost exactly until my photo shoot. Um, so as you guys can imagine, I'm already planning for the aftermath of that. And what the aftermath of that looks like for me is maintaining, I would say, what is it? Gaintaining. So basically after my photo shoot, I have a month and a half before I leave. No, maybe just under two months, about two months before I leave to Barbados. Now I'm going to Barbados, a tropical Island. It's a resort. I'm probably going to be one of the younger dudes there. 
But you best believe I'm going to try to be the most ripped, savage-looking dude on the entire fucking island. There's, like, I have to be. <laughs> it's just got to do it. That's what my goal is. It's been my goal. So that's why I set up a photo shoot. So I'm doing the photo shoot. My plan afterward is to kind of do what you're saying. Like, I want to put on some size after this, but I want to do it extremely slowly. Like, I'm talking, like, over a year. Like, I'm going to be planning out. And one thing I'm going to be doing is bringing uh, – this is actually going to be really cool – Unfortunately, you guys won't hear this unless you jump in the membership site. We kind of closed that down for the beta thing, but you know, there's always exceptions to the rule. So if you're interested in the membership site, shoot me a message. You can email me at Cody at BoomBoomPerformance.com, and you can learn more about it. Uh, or you can check out the landing page, I guess, BoomBoomPerformance.com slash elite. You can see what the membership site's about, whether you want to you know, get into it when it launches to public or really just – I mean I'm announcing it to the podcast listeners, so I guess they got an in on it right now. But – what I'm doing is I'm actually bringing Christian Thibodeau, which you guys know and love because his episodes are some of the most popular on my podcast. Me and him, I'm actually paying him for a consultation next week. So me and him are going to sit down on a call and I'm going to record the whole thing. and I'm going to put it inside the membership group. And he's basically going to break down my situation from cut up photo shoot prep to lean bulk, like exactly how I need to transition, how I should move my calories, what I should implement in my training and everything. So I'm really excited about that. The, the membership group, the Boom Boom Elite, they're going to get a chance to watch that and see exactly what he's going to have me do. So I'm pumped about that. Now, the ideal scenario for weight gain each week, or um, yeah, each week when attempting a lean bulk is honestly probably going to be a quarter of a pound. Like I know that sounds very little, but if you're already training and stuff, if you're not like – if this isn't your first year training, if you've been training for longer than a year, two years, three years, then you want like a quarter of a pound at max. That's a pound a month, and I'm saying at max. Some weeks you might actually maintain or like an eighth of a pound. The reason for that is because the more advanced we get, the harder it is to build muscle tissue without putting on body fat. And what I would want is you in a caloric surplus – of like 100 to 250 calories at most. That's the only way possible that you're, and you're still doing some cardio or conditioning. That's the only way possible to not add a bunch of fat while you build muscle. Um, I have some people that are body recomping, and what I do with them is, and this only happens when people aren't super dialed in. So if somebody's training hard, they, they're tracking macros, great. I will take somebody like that, and I'll be like, okay, if we're gonna gain without gaining any body fat, you might only, you might gain up quarter of a pound a month because if we're burning fat and building muscle, you're pretty much barely gaining anything. It's going to take way longer, but you're going to stay shredded while we build, which is ideal. For those people, I literally will start them at maintenance. So what we do is start them at maintenance calories and see if we can get any gains out of them without going into a surplus. And we just optimize all the finer details, meal timing, hydration, uh, carb timing, making sure you're insulin sensitive, whether that's fasting a little bit in your week or even just like a 12-hour fast a day, taking some kind of glucose disposal agent before your meals, um, implementing supplementation that's going to optimize your hormones, things like that come into play in this scenario. Once they are at this point where maybe we're not gaining, maybe we're not making progress, but we know for a fact we're building strength, we're building performance, and we are staying lean. We're not gaining any fat. We might not be building a bunch of muscle, and we're ready to kind of push that a little bit. At that point, I will add about 40 to 50 grams of carbs in one macro adjustment, but it will be through intra-workout carbs. So I'll take this person. They're tracking macros. We're eating enough, blah, blah, blah. Then I'm going to add 40 to 50 grams of carbs, but it's going to be specifically drinking with essential amino acids during their weight training sessions on those days. So those days are going to be a little bit higher calorie. 
that has been shown by studies to help mitigate the cortisol response to training. It's helped recovery, and it's also shown to help actually build cross-sectional muscle tissue, which is a fancy way of saying it literally builds muscle. So that's probably how I would approach it, and I would take a very, very slow approach, man. I wouldn't be quick to jump numbers. I wouldn't be quick to add a bunch of calories. Um, baseline, I would start at maintenance and, and measure everything. Measure your arms, your legs, your chest, your delts, your lats. Um, make sure you're at maintenance calories. Optimize supplements, hydration, and meal timing, carb timing. Fast 12 hours a day to improve insulin sensitivity. Take glucose disposal agents. Do everything you can to make sure those carbs are shuttling into the muscle. Optimize your training. Make sure that you're adding training volume before you add calories. So if you're doing four times a week, maybe you bump it up to five times a week. You're doing like a upper, lower rest, push-pull legs, and you're really cranking up the volume. Try to get as many gains as you can those ways and then add 150 calories, just 150 calories. Maybe it's probably, like I said, through inch of workout carbs. And then go from there and see how things uh, move along. Because at that point, it'll be slow progress, but it'll be good progress. All right. I have a friend. This is from Aaron.Dirth. I think we have our last, like, one or two questions. I have a friend that has aches and pains and is super tight and is obsessed with isolated bodybuilding. Gaining muscle in a functional way would benefit him so much. Any tips on how to try and convince slash help him? So, I don't know. I think, like, showing him – the best thing to do would be show him something like – Honestly, like I know this is biased, but my work, like functional muscle, um, if you can – like the key is showing people that training to build muscle is not about the modality you use. It's about volume, intensity, and frequency. So if we can can show somebody like, hey, as long as we're doing the right amount of reps, we're doing the right intensity, where volume is is high enough, we're taking deloads, and we're properly recovering, it doesn't matter – what type of training you're doing, whether that's isolation only or machines and stuff or it's functional. So I believe in isolation work, but usually it's with dumbbells and bands and stuff like that. So I would just approach them like that, like, man, hey, just try this system for four weeks. If you don't continue to gain and feel way better with your joints, I'll give you $100. I don't know, like bribe them in some way. But like running functional muscle is a great example of that. Like you're going to feel so much better in your joints, but and you're still going to build just as much muscle as you would have beforehand. Um, because it really just comes down to volume, intensity, tension techniques, frequency, things like that. That's really what build muscle. And the point of functional muscle and the functional muscle method that I use is to avoid joint pain, to avoid using unfunctional modalities that are going to actually place pressure on the joints and stress on the joints rather than um, using something like dumbbells and barbells and bands and things that I use to make sure that you're actually optimizing your movement patterns while you build muscle. So I don't really know how you'd convince them because I think that comes down to the person itself, but I think functional bodybuilding in general is, I think there's two ways to go about it, right? Like some people, and I'm not going to drop any names, but there's a lot of people who use quote unquote functional bodybuilding or functional muscle building or whatever the wrong way. I think it's too CrossFit-like. Um, and that's not a shot at CrossFit either. It's just a different type of training. There's nothing wrong with the training. And I actually have done these type of training and I like them. They're fun. I don't think it's functional bodybuilding though. I think bodybuilding is isolation work. Bodybuilding is strictly muscle building, mind-muscle connection, focus on the muscle, focus on growing the muscle, slow things down, control the movements. Um, and when we're adding Olympic lifting into it, if we're adding uh, AMRAP sessions where we're cranking on intensity, if we're only ever doing full body, I don't think it's as, as much functional muscle, functional bodybuilding as it should be. Bodybuilding is meant to isolate a muscle and build it. That's the definition of bodybuilding. You're sculpting a statue essentially. 
So I believe functional bodybuilding is usually it can be done full body or upper lower split or upper lower push pull leg style. And I think it's more about isolating muscle groups um, in a functional way, using dumbbells, using bands, using things like that. You're still working compound lifts, but everything is a little bit more controlled. Everything is a little bit more centered around loading patterns and tension and tempos to make sure that you actually feel the muscles work and you're actually isolating muscles to grow. All right, guys, that is a wrap. I hope you enjoyed the show today. A couple quick announcements before I let you go. First and foremost, I just want to encourage you to check out the products I have in the description. First one is the Nutrition Hierarchy. This is a very cheap guide to literally mastering your diet. That's why it's called the All-Inclusive Guide to Mastering Your Diet. It's going to teach you exactly what and how to manage your calories, your macros, your meal timing, your supplements, your micronutrients, literally everything you need to know about dieting and nutrition and how to change your body composition through nutrition is included in this book, not just to get your results, but to actually teach you how to get those results along the way. The next thing is going to be Functional Muscle, which is my first and right now my biggest product out there. This is the program that is based on years and years and years of functional training with tons of clients. So whether your goal is strength, fat loss, or muscle gain, you should be strength training towards these goals while prioritizing functional movement patterns to make sure that you are avoiding any injuries along the way. That's exactly what this program does, and it's great because it guides you through the process, it changes throughout the process, and it gives you demonstrations and explanations about everything you're doing so you never get confused and you always have a solution. You also get access into the Boom Boom Performance Podcast Forum. That is the only way into the forum, and that's where you can ask me literally anything about anything, and I will help guide you through the process. Last thing I want to mention, guys, is if you could leave me a five-star rating and review, that would be fantastic because it literally is one of the biggest and best ways for me to grow in the iTunes charts. Oh, yeah, and real quick, if you're not subscribed, hit the damn subscribe button because I constantly bust out content for you guys, and I spent a lot of time and effort making sure that you guys can get better results for free by simply listening to this podcast. All right, guys, I'll catch you next time.